NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. There are some candies that are all trick and no treat, and you won't want your family to have them this Halloween or ever. They're the popular sweets made in Mexico that feature a touch of tartness and a lot of chili. But all too often, the ground chili comes contaminated with lead. I was talking to one of the workers, and I said, I'm just curious about the kind of impurities that um, might come in these bags. And he kind of laughed. He's like, oh, I'll show you impurities. And he came back and showed me a car battery part. Also, with pinion trees under attack in the southwest, a sound artist turns bark beetle detective. We could go out, insert a probe, listen for the presence of the beetle, and tell the property owner that this tree is or this tree is not infected. That can help them make the decisions on which ones to spray. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. It's that candy time of year, the time when kids put on costumes and knock on doors to load up with the sweet stuff of Halloween. But you don't want them to bring back home some of the popular candies that are imported from Mexico. The problem surfaced in Southern California. That's where a team of journalists from the Orange County Register found dangerous amounts of lead in some candies from south of the border. The newspaper reported that a child in Orange County is as likely to get lead poisoning from tainted Mexican candy as from eating chips of lead paint. The register traced the lead in sweets back to the production of chili deep inside Mexico. With me to talk about their investigation are journalists Jennifer McKim and Valerie Godinez. Welcome to you both. Hi, Steve. Hi. Jennifer, let me start with you. Now, we should say first that some of these are very, very popular candies that generations of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans have grown up on, and they're sold pretty widely in the United States, wherever Mexican goods are sold. And uh, you found out that the state of California and the federal government knew that there were problematic amounts of lead in some candies who were doing little about it. But uh, what got you involved in this story in the first place? We were interested in the issue of lead poisoning in Orange County because of another story had brought up the is- issue. So we went to this county healthcare agency. We wanted to find out what was the problem. We asked them for their documents of investigations into the homes of children who have lead poisoning. When, it, when a child is found with high lead levels, they go to their home and look for sources. And when we got those documents, what surprised us was that many of these children were getting poisoned by lead in candy. So that was what brought the story to us. And at that point, we started requesting public records from the state and the feds asking for their information. And when we got the records from the state and the federal government, we were surprised to see that they had known about this for 10 years and that there were hundreds of tests of high levels of candy, which they'd found many times in the homes of lead poisoned children. And yet in most cases, they weren't telling neither public health officials, children, parents, or even Mexican officials or the companies that they were finding these problems. How much lead is in this candy? It's a significant amount of lead. We found that in 80% of the cases of high tests, that eating just one piece of candy would exceed the amount of lead that the FDA thinks is safe for a child to eat in one day. So if you eat over time, you can really raise your blood lead level. And as you know, Steve, lead poisoning, um, even in, in low levels, can affect a child's ability to learn. They can have behavioral problems. So even at low levels, it's a significant problem. To what extent did the authorities who are discovering this report it to the public uh, and warn people? 
When we started reporting this, I think there'd been six public health warnings over a period of 10 years, and they'd had scores of other candies that had tested high over periods of time, which they hadn't. So they had told a little bit, but not a lot. And we, we asked about that clearly and said, why aren't you telling people? And through the emails and through interviews, we found out several things. One is that just part of the issue with these candies is you don't you can test one candy in a batch and it'll test high and then the next will test low so it's very it's not homogeneous the testing and some of the public health officials said they couldn't go and warn people about a candy that only tested one out of 10 times high in lead they were concerned about liability we found in the emails and interviews that they were concerned that they'd get sued by these companies if they warned people we had public health nurses calling and saying is this candy dangerous and they wouldn't even give them the information they had and I guess your newspaper, the Orange County Register, went to the trouble of testing candy samples uh, yourself. So what did you find? Um, we tested about 180 samples of candies and wrappers. The problems are both in the candies and the wrappers and found about 32% of brands tested high. We also um, did extensive database work with the federal and state candy testing over years and found about a quarter of their tests also were high. So what of these high samples uh, was high enough to uh, elevate the, uh, a child's blood lead level to, uh, to pass to safe limits? Um, if you have a candy that's 0.2 parts per million, which is the lowest level that they'd really been testing at, and it, it's a regular-sized candy bar, if you ate that, that could equal 6 micrograms of lead, which if you ate over time would raise your lead level. Again, you can't, you, they don't have any testing for lead that if you eat one piece of anything, it will raise your blood level. But eaten over time, they show that if you eat that much candy, it will go up within a 30-day period. Your, your blood lead level could go to dangerous levels. Mm. And, uh, and 30 days is enough to do a lifetime of damage? Lead poisoning is uh, irreversible. It doesn't go away. So, yes, it can cause problems that, 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 that never go away. The big question, obviously, then here is how on earth does uh, lead get introduced into candy? Valerie uh, Godinas, can you help me here? Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. Um, w one thing during our reporting that we kept hearing from officials on the U.S. side of the border is that they suspected that um, chili, which is a main ingredient, uh, uh, milled chili, a main ingredient in a lot of these candies, was a problem. But there weren't any uh, conclusive, comprehensive tests that they did. So we were sort of at a crossroads, and we wanted to find out um, the source of this poisoning and decided we would go uh, find out ourselves. And what that entailed was us um, tracing the, the, the trail of candy um, backwards all the way down to the, the, the farms where this chili is grown. We tested everything from the well water to the soil in these chili farms to actually the fresh chilies off, off the fields and, and followed the process um, all along the way until the chili was actually ground up. And where is the lead? We found it's from our tests in, in Zacatecas, we found that it's Actually not, wasn't in the water, wasn't actually coming from fresh from the fields. What we found it was in the milling process. Uh, somewhere between the drying process and the milling process, lead is getting in. It's really quite fascinating to see the way it happened because, you know, in the fields, fruits and vegetables generally don't um, take up lead from the soil. So, you know, I didn't know that at that time. So we were submitting these tests of fresh peppers and they kept coming back negative. So we said, okay, we know that's not it. Then we followed it to the next step, which is uh, drying 
drying. And there are various drying facilities where they um, take them and dry them over 30, usually 34, 36 hour period. And then they lay them out on the ground. And we took, we took some samples from several dryers there. We began to see a problem with lead there. We began to to get some some hits there. It's a, a somewhat of a, a little bit of a dirty process. A lot of it's laid out in the ground as they're packing them up in, in various um, bags. You know, men get in and stomp on it with their boots and whatnot. So I then followed it from from the dryers to the chili mills, and what we saw was that in many cases the chili is is not washed before it's milled. Um, Something that was really startling that that we discovered is that these chili farmers, when they sell them to the millers, it's paid by weight. And so um, there's a real incentive for them to weigh their bags down. So what did you find in those bags? (laughs) Well, it was interesting because I was spending some time at a mill and, and, uh, you know, I was talking to one of the workers and I said, I'm just curious about the kind of impurities that um, might come in these bags. And he kind of laughed. He's like, oh, I'll show you impurities. And he came back and showed me a car battery part, um, uh, nails, uh, rocks. They've told me about, you know, they've found a hammer coming out of these bags and all sorts of things. And I asked him, you know, how, you know, what he told me is that eight out of 10 bags that went to that mill contained junk. And and then the dirt actually, too, since a lot of these chilies were not washed, the dirt clinging to these, um, you know, we think that that's also a, another source. What, what, what happened um, if, if the chilies were washed then? We think, and from various lead experts, that, that that would reduce it by by quite a bit. You know, there's still these other ways. You know, sometimes a lot of them use these these really old uh, milling equipment um, uh, that might be lead soldered, and then uh, as over time it grinds itself up and can get in that way. So there there are different um, ways aside from the dirt. But I really think by doing a thorough washing, that that really could help. And I should stress, too, because someone may be wondering, well, maybe you just picked up a bad batch. You know, we went to four different Mexican states. We, we went to Michoacán, Zacatecas, Aguascalientes, and Jalisco, and went to the major, major agricultural markets and over different periods and bought um, milled chili from these. And in almost all cases, they had lead. Now... I understand that your paper, the Orange County Register, has uh, printed up posters of all the candy that tested high for lead. And I've got a copy here. It's both in Spanish and in English. It's uh, It's got a little chart showing uh, what lead can do to you and how to avoid it, both in candy and in, and in other sources. What has happened since your investigation? This uh, That poster has been very popular. We printed up... Um, 370,000 copies that went out with our story. But since then, we had requests from public health officials, public nurses, schools across the country from Virginia to Seattle asking for copies of that poster. We printed up 50,000 more copies to distribute and ran out. We also had the Los Angeles School District request permission to print them out. They printed out about a million copies to send out to their schools and their students. I think candy manufacturers have seen their businesses drop and they've been looking, doing internal scrutiny to see where lead gets into the product. There's also been a, a whole lot of uh, government action since we, we started the project. A couple weeks before we ran the story, the U.S. FDA sent out a statement saying that they were aware that there was problems with lead in candies and that it would be prudent for kids not to eat certain 
candies with chili and tamarind in them and also certain seasonings that the kids eat as candy. Since the story ran, the state attorney general filed a lawsuit against 33 different companies trying to get the lead out. The U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission issued a ban on companies bringing in candies with high uh, lead in their wrappers. State uh, health departments from New York City, Chicago, Milwaukee, Nevada have all done their own testing and found some lead in certain things and also sent out health warnings on these candies. So there's been a there's been a lot of action, which which has been very gratifying. Um, the fact is, these candies are still very available on on the street still, and we can't be sure at this point that they're much better than they were before. So uh, there's still uh, there's still a lot of people out there working on this issue at this point. Uh, before we go, I have to ask you something. I have uh, some ground chili in my uh, in my kitchen uh, that I use on things. Uh, should I be getting that tested? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, when we were working on this and started to get positive um, hits on on the chili, we all looked at each other and thought, oh, my God, our salsa, you know, we're our pico de gallo and, and things like that. So um, in addition to, to the, the milled chili, we, we uh, did tested 25 U.S. and Mexican products made with chili, um, you know, salsa, cooking seasoning, picante sauce, uh, things like that. And, and what we found actually was almost none of those had any problems. There was one that had a 0.2 parts per million at the lower end of the scale. I want to thank you both. Jennifer McKim is a reporter and Valerie Godinez is an editor of the Orange County Register in Orange County, California. Thank you for taking this time with me today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Coming up, a sudden uptick in the gases that are warming the earth has scientists concerned. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Science tells us the more greenhouse gases, such as carbon dioxide, that are released into the atmosphere, the warmer the planet will become. And since the Industrial Revolution and the widespread use of coal, gas, and oil, the average temperature of the planet has risen by a degree, and CO2 has reached levels unmatched for hundreds of thousands of years. Now data from the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii show a sharp spike in the rate of increase of carbon dioxide over the last two years. Scientists say this jump in the rate of growth of CO2 levels could mean that we face a dramatically shortened timetable for addressing global warming. Joining me now is David Schimmel, senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. David, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. We know that carbon dioxide levels have been rising for some years now. What's different now? Over the past uh, decades, the increase in carbon dioxide has been roughly constant, somewhat paralleling the emissions from fossil fuel and other processes. The last two years have been uh, very high growth rates of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Two consecutive years is a little bit unusual, the, the really unusual thing is that they're not associated with any uh, obvious climatic event that might trigger, say, widespread drought or uh, unusually extensive wildfires. What are the possible explanations for this rather dramatic jump over the last two years in the amount of carbon dioxide coming into the atmosphere? 
The first explanation is the scary one, which is that the steady warming that's been occurring over the past few decades is somehow triggering a release of carbon uh, from certain types of ecosystems, uh, forests or northern uh, peatlands or other types of ecosystems that store large amounts of carbon. And if that were to be the correct explanation, it would be of concern because that's a feedback. The warmer it gets, potentially the more CO2 is released, contributing a fraction to the warming and then possibly releasing more carbon. So, in other words, the carbon comes out of what? Uh, trees or stuff on the... Trees, the, the, soils. Um, you know, in, in the Arctic, we've got many systems that have huge amounts of stored carbon in their soils. The soils are really just old, dead plant material uh, preserved there because of cold and wet conditions. Tell me about the not-so-scary explanation. Ah, good. The not-so-scary explanation is is a little bit more complicated. We believe that uh, one of the reasons that ecosystems, forests, and other types of systems are taking up carbon now in the 1990s and the 2000s is because there was a very large amount of forest harvesting in the U.S., in Europe, and in parts of Asia uh, between, say, 1850 and 1950. And there are large areas of regrowing forests uh, in areas that were abandoned from agriculture, in areas that were harvested, for example, in the U.S. during the mining and railroad building eras in the West. And those regrowing forests take up carbon. And the, the, uh, the young forests take it up quite rapidly. As they age, they begin to take up less and less carbon. They approach a, a maximum size, if you will. And it's possible that what we're seeing is the beginning of a turnaround in that process where all of these forests that were abandoned over the past 100, 150 years are beginning to mature. So Now, if that's true, it's not a good thing. We'd like to see those forests continuing to take up carbon, but it's not a feedback cycle with warming per se. Two years of data uh, looking at this increase is obviously a very short period of time, uh, probably too early to really tell what's causing this jump. But at what point do you think we might be able to know if this increase in carbon dioxide is a pattern? Well, you've asked the hardest question. How, when will we know something we don't know now? The simple answer is if this were to continue for two to three more years, it would really be unprecedented and it would be a very conclusive result. So at this point, it could still be a statistical fluke then. That's correct. And in fact, it could be uh, unusual conditions in the oceans and not associated with the biosphere at all, although that's a much less likely explanation. For the sake of discussion, uh, assuming that, the, that this increase is sustained, that we see it not for just two years, but for three or five or or six years. How serious is this problem? Well, it's not going to cause the world to end anytime soon. Um, it's certainly not a. Um, it's certainly not leading us into a day after tomorrow scenario, ten times faster than the uh, the situation that we've been observing over the past few decades. But it does mean that we have less time to develop new technology, to implement hydrogen, solar, other alternative energies than we would otherwise. So given these concerns, how long can we afford to wait to know for sure that this is a long-term problem? 
what point should we decide that it is or isn't? Well, if the increase in the atmosphere continues, that's an observable fact, and we'll know that that's occurring. Uh, federal agencies in the U.S., university groups, and other nations measure this quantity with great care and precision. So we'll know the fact of whether it's increasing, uh, whether this increase is continuing quite soon. David Schimmel is a senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Thanks for taking this time. Thanks, Steve. Time now for comments from you, our listeners. Our mailbox was stuffed this week with responses to our recent story about the unhealthy and dangerous conditions suffered by marine mammals at some sea parks. Some listeners said that by focusing on reports of animal abuse at parks without examining the case for non-capture, we were thinking too much inside the box. I wish there had been more commentary on the fact that marine mammals suffer horribly in captivity, not just physically, but socially writes Maggie Rufo, who listens to Living on Earth on KQED in San Francisco. Ms. Rufo was also disturbed by our interview with a former whale hunter who profited by capturing sea stars. Rarely have I had a physical reaction to something on the radio, she writes, but I actually felt my stomach hurt while I listened to this man. Marilee Menard, executive director for the Alliance of Marine Mammal Parks and Aquariums, had a different take. She defends the care of animals at accredited marine parks and says... Park-based scientific research has filled critical gaps in our understanding of various species. Much of what we know today about dolphins and whales was learned from animals in marine life parks, writes Ms. Menard, who hears us in Washington, D.C. This information not only helps improve quality of life for animals in marine parks, but also helps save many wild dolphins, whales, sea lions, and other marine mammals that are stranded, rehabilitated, and released back into the wild each year. And finally, a correction. We identified Ted Griffin, the former whale collector we talked with, as the founder of the Seattle Aquarium in Washington. But according to Tom Schaefer of the Seattle Aquarium, Mr. Griffin founded the Seattle Marine Aquarium. The Seattle Marine Aquarium that opened in 1962 and displayed two killer whales was Ted Griffin's private enterprise, writes Mr. Schaefer, who tunes in to Living on Earth on KUOW. The present Seattle Aquarium opened in 1977, after the closure of Griffin's Aquarium, and is owned and operated by the city of Seattle. The present aquarium has never had whales or dolphins. Your comments on our program are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or write us at 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. And you can hear our program anytime on our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. In the drought-stricken desert of northern New Mexico, the once-common pinyon tree is dying at a rapid rate. The thirsty, weakened trees are falling to an aggressive attack by tiny bark beetles. Some foresters say that there's little to be done to stop the infestation, and that the die-off is actually helping to thin out some areas of forests that are dangerously overgrown but upset property owners are looking for ways to save their pinions. Producer Paul Ingalls met someone in Santa Fe who was offering them help by literally listening to the Beatles' side of the story. Nancy Dahl walks toward a mostly barren hillside, just a few feet from her southwest-style stucco home on the outskirts of Santa Fe. We're now standing on what I call Pinon Boot Hill. You can see 
lots and lots of stumps where I've had my trees taken out. Dahl says she spent thousands of dollars over the last two years having more than 100 dead pinyon trees cut down and hauled off to reduce the threat a wildfire might pose to her home. When she moved here 25 years ago from Michigan, Dahl found a quiet, tree-buffered retreat. Now the drone of the nearby highway rolls unfettered up this cleared-off hillside right through the open windows of her home. Dahl's view isn't what it once was either. Across the highway, a hill of undeveloped open space, once a picturesque dense green, is now half brown with wasted pinyons. The trees were killed off by the Ips confusus bark beetle infestation that started midway through this region's now four-year drought. It's very sad. It's very, very sad for me. Really, these are my friends. These trees were my friends. Another friend of Dahl's, named David Dunn, stands nearby, at the edge of a grove of needleless, dead gray pinyons that look like the backdrop for a Halloween play. Like me, he wears headphones and has a recording machine slung on his shoulder. But the device connected to his recorder is a microphone like none I've ever seen. Basically, it's a meat thermometer meets a greeting card. Uh, A greeting card? Some of the best of these piezoelectric transducers actually can be found inside greeting cards, particularly Hallmark, make uh, really nice ones that they use as the little playback speakers. These little things work both as input and output transducers for sound. While Dunn is becoming known for creating unusual devices for recording the quieter sounds of nature, his resume includes classical training as a violinist, composing and performing experimental music, and teaching about the properties of sound. But he set aside most of that this year for projects that merge his sound-gathering skills with the environmental sciences. I think it is, it is essential at this point historically that artists take a role in collaboration with the scientific world, that artists and scientists work together towards real-world problem-solving. We need all the help we can get. Like a nurse administering an IV, Dunn gingerly slips the sharp four-inch metal probe at an angle about a half inch into a tree on Nancy Dahl's lot. Like that. And that's all we do. And then we listen. See if there's any activity. These Dunn recordings are amplified about six times over so we can hear them. The sounds we hear first are of a non-infested tree. And at this stage, there's virtually nothing. But what you do hear is, of course, the movement of the tree and the wind and, and uh, its motion. It's when one of Dunn's probes picks up noises like these that he knows a tree is a goner. As soon as the beetles are present, then we hear this characteristic sound the sound of larvae and adult beetle motions, a simple motion within the interior phloem of the tree. And Ips beetles, even though they're very, very small, about the size of a grain of rice, they uh, have a a, a little sound-generating organ on the back of their head called a pars striden, and it essentially functions like a, a gyro, or a percussion instrument that has uh, uh, ridges on it. 
so they basically can rub this the, the, their middle of their body against their heads as they move the heads and they produce sound both intentionally but also I think secondarily as just a consequence of motion within the, the tree. A pinyon tree, stressed by lack of water, essentially calls the beetles in by emitting a pheromone that signals it's too weak to fight. If a beetle started to bore into a healthy pinyon, the tree would produce sap to fill the hole and force the beetle out. But without water, there's no sap, and soon the beetles are drilling and breeding and making more of a racket. Here's Dunn's recording of a moderately infested tree. And before long, it sounds like quite a party in a fully infested tree. Even at this stage, the pinyon may look healthy on the outside, but the beetles have sentenced it to death by spreading a black-stained fungus on the inside that moves down through the tree's root structure. There it may spread on its own to other adjacent trees, or the beetles may themselves take the fungus to the next tree. But looking at, say, three apparently healthy pinyons side by side is a bit like trying to guess which shell has the pea under it in a shell game. From the point of view of the property owner, you'd like to know whether a tree is infected first. Bob Harrell is one of two scientists with David Dunn's nonprofit organization, the Art and Science Laboratory. He's a doctor of chemistry who's worked in applied environmental science since the late 1960s. Like Dunn, Harrell likes connecting the worlds of art and science to solve practical environmental riddles. Like in this case, which tree has the beetles? We could go out, insert a probe, listen for the presence of the beetle, and tell the property owner that this tree is or this tree is not infected. That can help them make the decisions on which ones to spray. And which ones to water, which can also strengthen the tree against the beetle attack. As word of David Dunn's technique spreads, he's been asked by more property owners to listen to their trees. He's happy to help and gather new data, but he says he's not trying to create a business opportunity. In fact, if clients insist on paying, he suggests a contribution to his nonprofit so he can afford to make even more recordings and design affordable tools to unearth what Bob Harrell thinks may be a rich field of study. There's been a great deal of research on what's called the chemical ecology, how chemicals produced by a tree, for example, might attract a particular pest, like, like a beetle. Uh, but we need to explore more about how sound mechanisms might actually contribute to, to the interactions between uh, insects and plants. Whether Harrell and Dunn's work can find utility beyond helping individual property owners save a few trees is uncertain. But their work has some state officials intrigued. Forest Service agents are open to the possibility that there might be some future role in forest management for the noises David Dunn and Bob Harrell are gathering. For Living on Earth, I'm Paul Ingalls in Santa Fe. Just ahead, a field guide to sprawl. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu. Now hear this. For years, scientists have puzzled over how sound waves flow through the ear and transform into electrical impulses that can be interpreted by the brain. In other words, how is it we can translate thousands of unique air vibrations into distinguishable sounds, such as the words in this report and the music you hear in the background? 
Researchers at the University of Virginia say they've taken the mute button off this mystery. In an article posted on the Internet edition of the journal Nature, the scientists report that they've identified a donut-shaped protein located at the tips of sensory hairs in the inner ear that's key to our ability to hear. In the absence of sound, this donut hole is closed. But when sound strikes the protein, the hole pops open and allows potassium and calcium ions to flood the cells of the sensory hairs. The ions carry a positive electrical charge, which generates an electrical signal inside the cells. The signal is then relayed to the brain and interpreted as specific sounds. Researchers hope the discovery could lead to new therapies for certain types of deafness in the next 10 years. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jennifer Chu. And you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Ford, maker of the Escape Hybrid, a full hybrid SUV able to run on electric power alone at certain speeds. FordVehicles.com backslash environment. The Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education and the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities. On the web at wkkf.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Phrases like snout house and parsley round the pig may sound more like they belong in a county fair than in a city planner's guide, but this is typical jargon for builders and real estate developers when it comes to describing the kind of American landscape we've come to know as sprawl. Dolores Hayden teaches architecture at Yale University and has compiled this slang, along with some of her own choice phrases, in a dictionary of sorts that she's titled A Field Guide to Sprawl. The volume is illustrated with aerial photographs taken by Jim Wark. Dolores Hayden says that citizens armed with her guide will be able to identify telltale signs of sprawl in their own neighborhoods. And she joins me now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you today. Now, most field guides that I know are of things that people are particularly interested in looking at and and, and want to see, you know, butterflies, birds, plants. But this really isn't one that you, the author, are thinking that people are going to want to look at out, out of pleasure. I organize this as a devil's dictionary of bad building patterns. It begins with an alligator, which is an unsuccessful subdivision that isn't producing any money. And it ends with a zoomburb, which is a place that's growing at double digits in each census. And in between, uh, there are many other terms that uh, seem to be to pretty much cover what one finds in vernacular American building today across the country. Okay. So a Zoomberg, you mentioned. You also have Boomberg in here. Now, what's the difference between a Zoomberg and a Boomberg? <laughs> a Boomberg is a rapidly growing urban-sized place that is not in uh, – that is located in the, in the suburbs and is not a central city. Many of them are in the metro areas of large cities like Phoenix, L.A., Denver, Las Vegas. A boomburb is essentially the same thing as a zoomburb. A newspaper in the South was edited by people who heard the word boomburb and they decided they could go at one better. And that's where they came up with zoomburb. Just tick off two or three of the most famous of these, perhaps. Uh, I think, I think uh, the one that's in the book is Simi Valley, California. 
But these are, these are not necessarily places that your listeners across the nation will have heard of because they're not really places. They don't have urban cores. They don't have – they often don't have much public space. They don't have very many jobs as opposed, as opposed to edge cities or edge nodes, which are places like Tyson's Corner – in Virginia, or Schaumburg, outside of Chicago. And your listeners will know those places uh, because they are urban scale in terms of the number of jobs that they have. And indeed, they usually have more jobs than bedrooms, although they may have a little bit of housing. They have, they have substantial jobs. Now, let's see, some other words you have in here. What's a toad? <laughs> well, a toad is... A very unattractive thing to find in the landscape. It is a temporary, uh, obsolete, abandoned or deteriorating building. And this is another planner's acronym. Uh, in the example that I give is an, is an abandoned uh, industrial facility in the Midwest. Something that no one has found a new use for. Something that's just simply not working. Uh-oh, I think the Amphibian mm -hmm. Anti-Defamation League might come after you on that one. <laughs> well, we have alligators uh, that are the unsuccessful real estate uh, speculations. There are ducks. Ducks are buildings that are built to resemble the products that are sold within them. And the toads we've just talked about. And then there are a number that have references to pigs. There's one called one phrase, parsley round the pig, it means landscaping a bad project, and that's landscape architecture slang. Hmm. And a snout house is a home for a pig? You have snout houses. Ah, uh, the snout house has a protruding garage, a two or three car garage that protrudes from the front of a house and pretty much obscures the facade of the house, so it's difficult to find the door. And in the photograph that Jim took, you see a whole row of these lined up, and you wonder whether you could get into any of these buildings. They've been made uh, to be against the uh, zoning rules in Portland, Oregon, where there was a planner who said that he wanted every house to pass what he called a trick-or-treat test. The trick-or-treat test means on Halloween kids can find the door. Some of the photographs that you have of aerial photography of these areas, they're, they're taken from mostly 2,000 feet in the air. This may sound ironic, Professor Hayden, but, but some of them look kind of beautiful, really. I mean, they, they, they have a strong graphic representation, uh, symmetry. My favorite is the tire dump. The photograph of the tire dump has so many different shades of black in it. It's quite a remarkable study in color. At the same time, you can look at this and think about how the United States is a country with 500 million waste tires sitting in various tire dumps across the country and on tire mountains sometimes. So it's a part of our landscape that we just need to look at a little harder. And I think if Jim's photographs encourage people to look a little bit harder, that's, uh, that's a good thing. What's the process that your photographer, Jim Work used to take these pictures? Well, he's a pilot as well as a photographer. He's based in Colorado and... Um, they're generally taken from between 500 and 2,000 feet. They're oblique angle aerial photos. So that means you can have the facade of the building set into the landscape in a way that shows you both the architecture and the site plan. In your book, you write that aerial photos are used by Walmart and McDonald's. Why? I think that many corporations looking for 
development sites, especially in the last 30 or 40 years, have taken to doing aerial surveys of neighborhoods that are growing and changing rapidly as a way to find sites uh, for new big box stores or new fast food places. And they're frequently used in combination with geographic information systems. In my book, I am trying to make aerial photography available to activists and citizens groups who may be opposing developers' suggestions about uh, new big box stores, new fast food, new subdivisions. I want this technology to be available to both sides. To what extent do you think that Sprawl was born of, of speculation? That is, builders who would get some money together, get some space to put up buildings without a customer already signing on the dotted line. Well, in the 1920s, Herbert Hoover was Secretary of Commerce before he became president. And at the Department of Commerce, he worked very closely with people in the real estate industry to find ways to stimulate real estate development and to promote employment through construction jobs. He created over 7,000 local growth machines uh, through an allied nonprofit called Better Homes in America, Inc. They drafted a good deal of legislation, some of which eventually became the FHA, uh, insured mortgages, which meant that uh, banks would advance a developer 90% of what he needed to produce a subdivision without having anybody sign on the dotted line. After that, there were additional subsidies for real estate developers. In 1954, tax legislation created accelerated depreciation for greenfield commercial real estate. And this is where the malls begin to thrive. It's very hard to have a mall that doesn't make money because of the way that the taxes are structured. You don't have to sell the goods to make money. You just have to write them all off in seven years. And then in 56, we got the Interstate Highway Act, which is also creating a lot of construction jobs and paving jobs, as well as supporting the uh, manufacturers of trucks and cars. So I'd say that if you choose to follow the history of sprawl through the intervention of the federal government in the creation of the built environment, you would find many, many examples of ways that speculation was supported. Now, you say that uh, the federal government encourages sprawl um, from the homeowner side by uh, Something you call a mansion subsidy. <laughs> the mansion subsidy. That's right. Yeah, well, can, you, can you explain what you mean by this? <laughs> we have a very strong subsidy for houses getting bigger and bigger all the time. And this is what's called a mansion subsidy. Basically, anyone who buys a house can subtract the mortgage interest plus the points in the property taxes from their taxable income every year. And this is... Um, possible on not just one house, but up to two houses. And the total principal can be $1 million a year. Uh, that is really a subsidy for people at the wrong end of the economic spectrum. We need to send our housing subsidies to people who need affordable housing and modest houses. That mansion subsidy ought to be capped at the price of a modest house. Which is how much these days? Uh, well, I think it depends a little bit on where you are. But uh, it definitely isn't a million dollars. <laughs> now, why is there relatively little sprawl in Europe? I think 
the Europeans have stronger land use control. They have better green belts. They have more barriers and uh, growth boundaries and much stronger historic preservation legislation. But that said, um, there is sprawl in Europe. If you go to the outskirts of many beautifully preserved older towns or cities, you do find the big boxes, the fast food, and the tank farms, many of the, many of the same things that one finds in the United States are there, sometimes camouflaged a little more effectively. And oh. it'll frequently be American corporations who are, who are uh, heading the planning projects and building projects that are there in Europe. It's, it is a global thing. Dolores, your book is called A Field Guide to Sprawl. If you were writing a book called A Field Guide to Anti-Sprawl, where would you take a picture? Oh, there are many communities that I have found very fascinating, but the project that I would point to right away is down in Westchester County. There was an abandoned factory there, which was really a toad, and a group of people decided they would convert it into a new public library for the town on the ground floor and affordable housing on the two upper floors with special priority given to firefighters and teachers working in that town. It's right across the street from a railroad station, and it anchors a part of an older business district. And that's the sort of project that knits together pieces of an existing town and makes everything a little bit stronger. Dolores Hayden is a professor of architecture and American studies at Yale University and author of the book A Field Guide to Sprawl. Thanks for taking this time with me today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Insects are everywhere. They can drive us crazy, make us sick, feed us, feed on us, and help us in ways we're often unaware of. This week, we're kicking off what will be an occasional series about these tiny creatures by author Josie Glausius. Today, she chronicles the intimate connection between humans and bedbugs. The bedbug is a strange and persistent bedfellow. It's been sleeping with us since we first started dwelling in caves. At least 12 species of these bloodsuckers are parasites of bats, and many others feed on cave-nesting birds. Their descendants, probably realising that humans are edible too, followed us to our homes, hiding by day in the walls of houses or inside bedding and emerging by night. According to a 14th-century dictionary of the life of animals, the creature was said to have its origin in warm blood and an extravagant fondness for humans. This book of beastly lore may have been mistaken about the bug's origin, but it was accurate about its love for blood. It needs this nourishment to molt from nymph to adult. Though it doesn't transmit disease, it is extremely annoying, as its saliva triggers large itchy bumps on the skin, and excessive biting can cause anemia in infants. Male bedbugs have been called the sex maniacs of the insect world, since there seems to be no limit to their lust. They'll mate with females repeatedly, both of their own and other species, and with other males as well. The bedbug sex act, called traumatic insemination, is also unusual. The male takes his copulatory organ and stabs the female in the abdomen. From there, the sperm must travel to her oviducts. Strange sex acts in bed may be the least that humans have to fear, though. 
Once driven away by DDT, bedbugs and their biting ways are making a comeback. Hiding out in people's suitcases and old flea market furniture, they travel from place to place and pesticide resistance makes them hard to eradicate. The bedbug was once used as a remedy for snake bites. The ancients said, Seven bedbugs mingled with water were a dose for man, while four were sufficient for children, and the smell of them will relieve hysterical suffocation. One, two, one, two, ready, go! Josie Glausius is author of Buzz, the intimate bond between humans and insects. To see electron microscope photographs of the bedbug and other arthropods, go to our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. I say, hey there, little insect. Don't scare me so. Don't land on me, baby. And bite me low. I say, hey there, little insect. Please calm down. Then we'll have fun and fool around. Say hey there, little praying manners. I have what to play. Each time on my arm you landed Next week on Living on Earth, the votes will be cast and counted, tabulated and tallied, and with any luck, we'll soon know whether this man will keep his job in the Oval Office. I guess you'd say uh, uh, I'm a good steward of the land. The, the quality of the air is cleaner since I've been the president. Or whether this man will be the next president. Now, when it comes to the issue of the environment, This is one of the worst administrations in modern history. Whether John Kerry takes the White House or George W. Bush gets four more years, we'll look at how the environment might fare next time on Living on Earth. And remember, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. We take you now to an age-old gathering of migrants. Lang Elliott and Ted Mack recorded this festival of cranes feeding and resting in the shallow waters along the Platte River near Llewellyn, Nebraska. Living on Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Christopher Bolick, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Ingrid Lobet, Susan Shepard, and Jeff Young, with help from Carl Lindemann, Diana Schoberg, and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Jenny Cecil Moore, Jen Goodman, and Steve Gregory. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. Our technical director is Paul Wabreck. Allison Dean composed our themes. Al Avery runs our website. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Environmental sound art, courtesy of Earth Year. I'm Steve Kerwin. Thanks for listening.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from Ford, maker of the Escape Hybrid SUV, uniting SUV versatility with environmental responsibility. Details at FordVehicles.com. The National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and more. Women of Inspiration speak at the Stonyfield Strong Women programs, taking place in Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C. Details at Stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues. This is NPR, National Public Radio.